0: Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon.
1: Good morning. My name is Sion, and I'll be reading for today's scripture reading from Acts 28. So please follow along in your Bible or on the screen above. Acts 28. This is God's word and it is eternally true. When they had been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta. The natives showed us extraordinary kindness for because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a the fire and received us all. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, A viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading men of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously three days. And it happened that the father of Publius was laying in bed, afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. And Paul went in and Paul went in to see him, and after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. After this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. They also honored us with many marks of respect, and when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all we needed. At the end of of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. After we put in at uh, Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there, we sailed around and arrived at Regium, and a day later, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There, we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and thus, we came to Rome. And the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of uh, Appius and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who was guarding him. After three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they came together, he began saying to them, brethren, Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appear to Caesar, not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I'm wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. They said to him, we have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for concerning this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah, the prophet to your fathers saying, go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive for the heart of this people has become dull and with their ears, they scarcely hear and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. When he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came in, Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thank you, Sion. We started into the book of Acts about nine months ago, and we're wrapping that up today. I hope it's the same for you as it's been for me that throughout this time in this book the the Apostle Paul has become much dearer as we've seen his suffering and things he was willing to endure and the things he was able to accomplish with the spirit within him. he's just, I understand him better, I appreciate him more, and that's why we're going next in our preaching to his letter to the Philippians so that we can take what we have gained from Acts and hopefully carry it into Philippians and understand that and appreciate it even better. Acts is traditionally known as the Acts of the Apostles, and that's a fine enough title. But as it serves as a sequel to Luke's gospel account and the gospels are about the works and deeds of Jesus, Acts is really about the continuing works of Jesus, the acts of Jesus from heaven, by his spirit, through his spirit. Church through their faithful witness. And in particular, in this book of the Bible, what we start to see unfold is Jesus' new covenant plan to expand his kingdom beyond the borders of the nation of Israel to all the nations of the earth. Jesus had told his disciples back in the first chapter of Acts that they were going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts. Of the earth, and here in the last chapter, we see the Apostle Paul in the seat of Gentile power, Rome, uh, ministering the gospel. And from the the first century Jewish perspective, this is the ends of the earth. So it's like a completion, a fulfillment that Luke gives us here at the end. Paul had wanted to visit Rome for a long time. We know this from his letter to the Romans, which he had penned a few years earlier from Corinth, and he'd won, he did not plant Christianity in Italy or in Rome, but he took an interest in them and their faith. This is a very significant church and a very significant part of the world, and so Paul naturally as an apostle takes an interest in their spiritual development, so he's written them a letter, and we also know from that letter that his ambition was actually to get beyond there to Spain where the gospel had never been preached before. Paul was a pioneer, um, wanted to plant where no one had yet planted. We don't know whether he ever did get to Spain or not. Luke leaves, this, leaves off the account of Paul's life and ministry here in, in something of an odd way, and we want to consider why and what there is to learn from it. Paul comes to Italy at this time a prisoner of the Roman Empire. Hated by his countrymen, the Jews, back in Judea. Fiercely hated. They viewed him as a traitor to their religion, their God, their their cause in the world. And Paul was in Roman custody, not because the Romans had found that he had done anything objectionable or worthy of imprisonment or death, but because of the hatred against him. He is not just a Jew, but he's also a Roman citizen. So they're duty-bound to protect him from the animosity and raging of his countrymen, who will not let it go. So they keep him incarcerated for a period of years, and they keep pressing the Roman authorities, the Jews do, um, to prevent Paul's release. And so at some point, he runs out of options and decides that he needs to appeal to Caesar, and that's going to get him out of town, out of this heated context and onto the the next stage of his life and ministry. So he does. And that appeal sets in motion this 1,500-mile late-season voyage from Judea to Rome. That ends in shipwreck after days, at, 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 literally at sea, being driven around by the wind. Um, and then they, they, he and 276 other passengers aboard this ship are shipwrecked off the coast of Malta and barely make it to shore, but God has superintended this and has promised Paul that, amazingly, none of them are going to die. If you remember last week, that the situation was pretty dire. But God directs them to this tiny little island, and all the lives on board ship are saved, just as God promised Paul in the midst of that storm. And chapter 28, this last chapter of Acts, picks up right there the moment that they're climbing waterlogged, shipwrecked people climbing up on on the shore of a land they don't recognize or know. They're trying to figure out where it is and in need of everything and finding their needs met by these natives of the island of Malta. So the chapter 28, as it presents itself, is easily divided into three sections. and We're going to kind of walk through those sections, different stages of this final leg of the journey to Rome. And uh, learn what there is, and then try to wrap up by considering why on earth Luke ends this here in this way. And doesn't tell us more. It seems like he's been building, and then he doesn't give us the punchline. But he does. Just not one that we're expecting. So the first verses, verses 1-10, through tell us how Paul spent three months waiting out the winter on this island of Malta. The the survivors of the wreck, they come ashore together. They discover that the land they've been washed up on is the island of Malta, south of Sicily. Luke emphasizes here the extraordinary kindness and hospitality of these native Maltese. The original word that he used for natives is barbarians. That's a word that the Greeks or the Romans would use for anybody who wasn't Greek or Roman. And so here are some barbarians on this island. It's rainy. It's cold. It's winter time. They're waterlogged. They have nothing, and these Maltese find them, and they immediately kindle a large fire. We've had some fires out here this week. Big brush. I don't know if you've, anybody's seen the brush. We got a good view of one, really going. They probably had to kindle a large fire for 276 people to get warm by, but they do, and this is their. This is the first of a number of different. Pretty significant acts of hospitality and kindness that Luke records here being shown to Paul and the the other destitute people. Um, Luke tells how uh, Publius, the leading man of the island, welcomed and entertained them courteously for three days in verse 7. So there's the fire, then there's Publius and his entertaining them for three days courteously. And this, that led also to Paul having an opportunity to do him a good turn and healing his sick father, which led to a, an open door for all kinds of ministry on the island during these three months as people come with their sicknesses and their needs to be healed of Paul. And we can trust that Paul also ministered the word of Christ to them and taught them about the Lord. Then also Luke adds in verse 10 how the islanders honored them with many marks of respect. They didn't just put up with them. They showed them honor and cared for them, met their needs, and when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all that we needed. That's that's really remarkable. I experienced this once in my life. Uh, When I was 10 years old, our house burned to the ground, and it's And we lived in a community with our other relatives out in the country, so each had adjoining farms. And so we were up at grandma's house in the living room, watching the house burn across the field at night in the winter. And within just a couple of hours of us sitting there, you know, afraid and wondering what on earth this means, some kind person showed up, who knew this was going on, showed up with a basket full of their kids' clothes that they had culled from their closet. Not the old stuff, the new Nike sneakers. Filled a basket with stuff they thought we might need because they knew we had nothing. And they showed up and they put it in the front door. It was amazing. This is the kind of measure of kindness, hospitality, care being extended by these unbelieving barbarian Maltese. Now, there's a lesson for us in this. And that is, unbelievers are people. Unbelievers are people. And as people, mutual bearers of God's image, they are capable of feeling sympathy and pity and concern for each other. The image of God that's resident in them may be twisted and corrupt. It is... They may need to be, it may need to be regenerated, renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. They may be, and are, enemies of God, but that doesn't mean they're not human and feel normal human things, capable of deeds of of kindness and sympathy. Most unbelievers, now I know that some, some, in some people, the image of God barely seems to shine through. But most people love their neighbors, love their wives and kids, enjoy life, are capable of feeling sympathy for those who are downtrodden and in need, and are there and ready to do something to help when they can. Now, we can easily forget this out of a misguided sense of pride, self-protection, as believers. We can wall off our lives from our unbelieving neighbors and sort of look at them with suspicion and distrust to the extent that we almost forget that they're just humans. And certainly when we see them capable of doing, these islanders extending such deeds of kindness and hospitality, and we can see that in our lives today, I remember... Some of my relatives got bikes donated from their neighbor. Remember that? When we see such deeds of kindness being extended by unbelievers toward us, well we should not be outdone. We should be ready um, to be to, to extend kindness towards them as well. We have all the more reason because of all that we know and all we have been given from the Lord. Do you hear what I'm saying? I know my own heart well enough to know that I can easily talk myself into prejudices and self-protection mode from the unbelievers around me and figure out ways, even seemingly pious ways, to insulate my life in such a way as I have to have very little interaction with them or ever have my needs exposed such that they could do me a kindness or know their needs such that I could do them some. And this is not how we should live. It's not how Jesus lived and ministered. It's not how Paul lived and ministered. And it's how Paul in his writing says when he's writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians. He says, so I wrote in my first letter We have a letter that's been lost. We don't know it. The very first letter, the actual first letter of the Corinthians, we don't know. But in what we know as 1 Corinthians, he says, I wrote to you earlier not to associate with any, this is my paraphrase, anybody that's a sinner. I just want to make myself clear. I was referring to any so-called brothers. I was not in any way referring to people of this world. Because you'd have to go out of the world in order to do that. No, no, that's not what I mean at all. I just mean don't associate with any so-called brother who's living in open sin like that. Okay? So this is how we are to be. Open towards our community. Willing, ready to get to know them. To take an interest in their life. To care for them. Yes, to preach the gospel. They desperately need it. And let's not forget that they put their pants on one leg at a time like you and me. That's what I'm trying to say. There's a lot in common because we share the image of God. And there are other evidences of the image of God that's resident in in man that that we see here in uh, these islanders beyond just acts of kindness that Luke draws our attention to. As Paul is helping gather sticks for this fire to warm people, He's, uh, he gathers sticks and he lays them near or on the fire. And this viper is is startled or warmed or something by the heat, and it jumps out and attaches itself to Paul's hand. And how do the islanders respond? What's their what's their basic assumption about what's going on and their worldview? This is a guilty man. He survived the sea somehow, but but he must be a criminal, probably the worst kind of criminal, a murderer. And, they show that, and, and so justice has, has kept him from escaping, and surely this is the end for him. And, pi, and, and Calvin says in his comments about this that this is a sign of piety on their part, of this innate spiritual knowledge that they can't escape. Because they read into the world and understand the world as having this principle of retributive justice and a knowledge that some crimes and some sins are so horrible that they are worthy of death and that there are forces in this world, moral laws that govern man and forces in this world that are ready to keep him accountable to those laws. And there's a basic underlying deep-seated irrepressible religious impulse and piety in these people that you can actually, if you have ears for it, even among atheist people in this town, hear a lot of. I remember one time I had a health condition when I was in college, and this uh, avowed, atheistic, filthy-mouthed violist teacher (laughs) at my music school, when they saw me after weeks of being hospitalized for the first time, came up to me and said, That was so scary. We've been praying for you. Well, I'm not saying that her prayers were heard, but that there's a religious impulse in man that's irrepressible. God has written on our hearts his law and the knowledge of him. And at times, it comes out, even if we're avowed atheists. We can't repress it. It's there. They have this in them. Even though they're wrong about Paul's guilt, they're right about the nature of the world to a degree. Paul is miraculously protected from this snake bite. God has further plans for him. He's promised him he's getting to Rome, and this snake's not getting in God's way. And so Paul just sort of shakes it off like it's no more than a nuisance into the fire. And... uh, So we were talking about this in staff meeting that you've probably forgotten that I, you've probably thought I forgot this was Father's Day, and we we decided that we would go ahead and have the last sermon of Acts instead of a special Father's Day sermon, but we didn't want to leave you without a Father's Day lesson. So here you go, dads, okay? Next time that you are washed up on shore after your ship goes down, and you're cold, it's in the middle of winter and you're at the mercy of islanders who kindle you a fire and out of the fire jumps a snake and attaches itself to your hand, you shake that puppy off, okay? (laughs) That's what the Apostle Paul would do. But seriously, God protected Paul. And the islanders, it's another interesting thing that we see here. That the islanders, they see what happens. They, they're prepared to see Paul as a criminal, as a murderer. And then they watch and observe him. They see the, there's no swelling, there's, he doesn't keel over dead. And they, then they swing to the opposite strong opinion immediately, which is the reverse of what Paul had experienced with Barnabas in Lystra. He's a god! They were ready to call uh, Paul and Barnabas gods in Lystra, and then a few verses later were stoning Paul to death. He didn't die. God brought him through that too. But here's the reverse. They think he's a murderer, the worst kind of criminal, and he survives this. He must be a god. Now this too shows their and reveals their religious instinct and impulse. They're, They're not entirely wrong about God's involvement in this, somehow. Only God could overcome and counteract the, the power, the natural force of venom like this from a deadly snake on the hand. There's no sign of any infection of, at all. And so they're ready to count Paul a god. And that is a, that is a shared religious knowledge that we can trust that Paul built on and worked with over the coming months of ministry on this island. To lead them to the Lord. No, I'm not a god, at all. But I'll introduce you to him. And I'm his servant, and I'll pray for you. And then historians actually count this or look to this time, this period in Malta's history, as the birth of Christianity on an island. And it's known as a Christian place. It's Roman Catholic, but it's it's it used to be pagan. Entirely pagan. The next verses, 11 to 15, explain how the voyage resumes and progresses by sea and land to Rome. And this section reads more like a hero's welcome than it does like a prisoner transport report. So as the winter fades and the seas are becoming passable again, Julius the centurion in charge secures them all passage on another Alexandrian ship. The one that had sunk was Alexandrian. This is a new one. This is notable for having the twin brothers, verse 11 says, for its figurehead. That's not a reference to Romulus and Remus, the famed, um, possibly mythical founders of Rome. These are the sons of Zeus, known as Castor and Pollux, the patrons of sailors and the controllers of the wind. Uh, this may just be a notable bit of color thrown in by Luke, but it could also be a little joke from Luke. Uh, I, I'm tempted to think it's a little joke from Luke. This is sort of like, Not that he believes in such things, or the power of these sorts of mythical beings to protect them, but sort of like the last ship went down was Alexandrian. This one's got the twin brothers. Maybe if we'd had the twin brothers before, we wouldn't have had such problems. Who knows why he throws it in there, but it is Interesting. So from here, they sail north to Syracuse and Sicily. If you put the map up there again. So we followed, in the the 27th chapter, we followed this line of Paul's journey all the way from the far right in Jerusalem or Caesarea up and around to the island of Malta. And that's where they spent the last three months on Malta. Now they're sailing north to Rome and they stop at Syracuse. And then from there to the first stop in Italy, Regium, which is right there on the toe of the boot. And they quickly get a favorable wind there in Regium, and they sail in one day up to (laughs) Putioli. I don't know how to say it. We need a Curtis or (laughs) Don. And here in uh, that place that I won't try to embarrass myself by pronouncing again, they meet with some brethren. And these brethren invite them to stay with them for seven days. And there's no way Paul could have gotten away with that if Julius hadn't just indulged him, this invitation. And who knows, maybe Julius himself had a reason to stick around, or maybe he's become a Christian and wants this season of encouragement from these folks, is eager to fellowship with more people who share this faith. I don't know, it's not said, but they stay for seven days, Uh, being cared for and ministered to by these brothers. And this is the beginning of a sequence of of warm welcomes by the Italians. These are the first Italian um, believers on their soil that Paul has encountered. He's written them a letter. He has put his best efforts into this letter. It is his masterpiece, the letter to the Romans. It's his great theological treatise. He's put his heart and soul into this thing. He sent it off with somebody else to be delivered there. Two or three years goes by, he has no idea what they thought of it, how they received it, whether they even got it. He doesn't know. You know those emails or those texts you write that go unresponded to for like 10 minutes and you're like wondering, <laughs> you got butterflies in your stomach, you've got regrets, you read it again, did I say the right, you know, is that going to make sense? He's got two years to to figure this out, and to think about it, and to wait and wonder. And there's these signs of incredible acceptance and joyful reception on the part of these Italian believers. The first one is this seven days of hospitality. They go on from there, probably by foot, to the north along a famous Roman road, and uh, at two different places outside of the city, many miles outside of the city, delegations of Christians from the church, hearing that Paul was coming, meet him out there. The first one is, what's it called? What verse is it? Come on. Fifteen. Fifteen. Market of Appius, that's 40 miles from the city of Rome. So they've walked 40 miles to greet the Apostle Paul. The next one, the three ends, is 10 miles closer, so 30 miles. There's two different delegations of people who have walked out for more than a day, probably several days, in order to greet and welcome and and see the Apostle Paul. That's quite a reception. If you were Paul, how would you feel? That's honor. That's interest. That is is appreciation and respect for his apostleship, his letter, his teaching. It's pretty remarkable. And how does Paul feel? He, He says in verse 15: when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. We have a lot of instances through the book of Acts where the power of encouragement is at work. Paul, as an apostle, has proven himself that he does not work for the approval of man, but for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he'll suffer all kinds of things for the sake of Jesus, right? He's proven that. And yet here we see a man. He's a man who is part of a body. And that body owes things to its members, one member to another. Paul gives his life to serve them and to teach them and to admonish them and protect them. And they owe him their love and their support. And he he gets it. Let's not forget the power of encouragement. How desperately we need it and owe it to one another. Let's not assume other people know what we think of them. How proud we are of them. The good work we think they're doing. Let's not assume that. Let's be eager to show it like these believers were. The last section of the text tells what Paul does immediately upon arriving at Rome and what he proceeds to do the following two years as he waits trial before Caesar. So he comes to Rome prisoner. He's not treated severely like we assume the other prisoners were who get dumped in the camp or the jail. Paul is, uh, is allowed this privilege of maintaining his own quarters and hiring his own house, he's assigned a guard. He's probably chained to this guard. He is not allowed to leave the house, but he is afforded this this luxury, this measure of freedom that he can have his own lodgings in town and not be isolated from people and not have poor conditions. It's pretty amazing. That probably had a lot to do, we would assume, with letters that would always be transported with the prisoners that Julius would have had on his person that would explain from Festus to, the, to Caesar who this guy is and what this matter is all about. And it probably says, We've not, we don't know, we can't find anything wrong with this guy. He's not done anything objectionable, but the Jews are after him and he's here on his own, of his own choice. We were prepared to let him go, but he appealed to you. So here he is. After getting established in his house just in three short days, Paul feels an urgent need to meet the leading leading men of the Jews. And that's what he does. He's not allowed... Normally, when he would go to a place, a new place, he would start first by attending the synagogue, and if invited to, he would preach there and start to minister first among the Jews. This is the priority he gave in his ministry to the Jew first and also to the Greek, even though he was the apostle to the Gentiles. He does a similar thing here. But he's not able to go. He's not at liberty to go. So he calls them to himself. And they're, they're, they come, and they hear what he has to say. He has two meetings with them. This first one ends up being mostly about personal political things between the two of them, between Paul and the Jews. That he's eager to try to clear up some matters before anybody hears anything, or who not knowing what they've heard about him. He wants to get some things really clear. So in this first meeting, sorry. In this first meeting, he tries to get. Here's my summary of the four points he wants to try to get across. First, he wants he's intent that they should know that his appearance before them as a prisoner of Rome is not because he has done anything against their nation or their customs. I, I just want you to know, I this is I am not here in these chains because I have violated our nation or our, the customs of our fathers. Not at all. Secondly, he wants them to know that the Roman authorities in Judea found no fault in him and were prepared to release him, except that the Jews kept speaking out against Paul's liberation, and that's what forced him to appeal to Caesar. He, he only did that because it was absolutely necessary and forced upon him. Thirdly, and this is probably the most important thing that he's trying to delicately get across, I'm not bringing, as I come to Caesar, I'm not bringing any charges against our nation. I'm not here trying to stir up trouble for nobody. Okay? I'm trying to get out of trouble. And as I do it, I'm not bringing accusations against our nation. They'd be sensitive to this because the Jews had just a few years previously under the Emperor Claudius been kicked out, driven out of Rome, and only recently been reestablished there. So they'd be sensitive to any further trouble coming upon them. And fourthly, he says, he wants to get across that it's on account of their shared hope in the Messiah that he's in these chains. Now that would be very perplexing to them, an interesting, provocative statement, but that's what he says. It's the shared hope of Israel that I, it's, that's why I'm in these chains here before you. And I Basically, I would, he's saying, I would love to, an opportunity to explain that to you, what I mean by that, what that hope is, in my view. And so they, say, they respond by saying, well, we've never really heard of you. We don't know who you are. We've not received letters from anybody, negative, good or bad, about who you are. No, nobody, no, no delegates from Judea have come to warn us about you. That's pretty amazing, actually, to consider, because if, you've, if you followed along with Acts, you know the character of so tenacious of these Jews and how much hatred they have for Paul. It's pretty surprising that nobody had been sent ahead, and, but maybe they had. Maybe they had been held up by the same winter storms that had held up the Apostle Paul. We don't know, but they say they have not received word. They also say, but well, we have heard about this sect that you seem to represent, or part of, and we know that it's spoken ill of everywhere. We will hear you out. We'll, we'll appoint a time to sit down with you and hear your views, because this is kind of curious. We'd like to know more about this. It doesn't sound like uh, overwhelming excitement of sitting down with Paul and hearing ab- about his teaching, but they're willing to do it. And so they set a time for it. And, and this, sec- this next meeting with Paul is much uh, more attended larger attendance here it says in verse 23 that they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God, that it's a, this would be the essence of his teaching in his view that it 's that it's a spiritual kingdom that it 's not coterminous with the boundaries of Israel that extends it 's a spiritual kingdom that extends to all the peoples of the earth. so he taught them about the kingdom of God and about how Jesus the suffering servant who rose again was the fulfillment of all the messianic promises of the Old Testament scriptures. He wasn't just lecturing to them about these topics. He was trying to recruit them and enlist them to join with Jesus and, and join his cause. And it was probably, it says it was all day long, from morning till evening. It was probably not just a monologue like I'm giving you, but probably back and forth, taking questions, having arguments, trying to reason and persuade. The results of Paul's attempts here in this second meeting are characteristically mixed. We've seen this pattern before. Some are persuaded, the majority, it says, would not believe. They would not believe. Verse 24. Since there could be no consensus among them, they began to depart. And Paul spoke to them one last somber word of warning from the prophets. he had spoken to them all day long about Jesus and how he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. And now he tells them that their rejection of this teaching and about the Messiah today is also in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. That's heavy, heavy stuff. I want to read it. There's what he quoted to them. This is the fifth time this passage is quoted in the Scriptures. All four Gospels have it. Jesus quotes it has his ultimate uh, judgment, statement of judgment upon the nation of Israel for their rejection of God and him. And Paul also quotes it here in Acts at the end of his work on behalf of the Jews. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. but they would not believe. That was Paul's experience everywhere. That the vast majority of God's own people would not believe the message and the coming of their own promised Messiah. Their own promised, long-looked-for and anticipated Messiah. They would not believe or accept him. And this is a function of God's wrath and judgment upon them. We sang in our first song, before we start to feel superior to any Jews, we sang in our first, or second song, I think, Let Us Love and Sing in Wonder. The second verse of that song, why don't you put that verse up, can you? It struck me, Let us love the Lord who bought us pitied us when enemies called us by his grace and taught us, gave us ears and gave us eyes. We, if we believe in the Lord Jesus, if we've had eyes to see and behold his beauty, if we've had ears to hear the wisdom of his word and hearts to receive it, it's because he gave us ears and gave us eyes. He can give, he can withhold. And it's chilling and awful to think that he withheld from his own people as a judgment upon them for their years and generations of rejection of him and his prophets, the ability to see and receive the Messiah when he came. Now, Paul, as he's pronouncing this upon them, knows full well that this is not the end of the story of God's plan and purpose for the Jews. He's written the book of Romans, and in the 11th chapter of Romans, he he lays this out, God's future purposes for his people, the Jews, and how there's going to come a day when they will be grafted back into the church, and that this is going to be a day of great benefit and huge blessing to the kingdom of God. That's a blessing that we hope for and wait for and pray for to come. But this final statement of Paul's against his countrymen marks the apparent end of his attempts to show them priority in his missionary efforts. From now on, he's going to the Gentiles, and verse 28, they will also listen. They will listen. And that is also what we see. Not every Gentile hears and believes, but by comparison, multitudes. Multitudes. And the final two verses of this passage tell us how Paul used the freedoms that were afforded him under this house arrest situation in Rome to preach the gospel for two more years to all who inquired of him in his rented quarters there, he, was, he, he spent his time preaching the kingdom of God, it says, and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, that is, all boldness, unhindered. Now that's an amazing paradox. Here he is, this man in chains, under house arrest, preaching the gospel to anybody who would come to him, and it says, unhindered. That's the final word of the book of Acts. It's an amazing word. Why does Luke end the account of Paul and all, the, all these amazing goings on here in this way? It seems like there's been chapters and chapters and weeks and weeks of buildup, of legal buildup of this courtroom drama leading to a final encounter Cathartic encounter with Caesar himself. Paul has been carried there through all kinds of struggles and storms and difficulties to coming, expecting to stand before Caesar. Luke has built this expectation in us and he doesn't tell us the outcome. We just have Paul waiting for it for two years, using his time to minister with boldness, without hindrance. Why? Why? Why is that the end of Acts? Why is that a fitting end? Well, people have suggested that it's actually not the intentional end. That Luke meant to come back and write another third section of the book of Acts after this, the further adventures of the Apostle Paul, and never got around to it or was prevented from doing it for some reason. That's, people have suggested that. I don't buy that. I think that, the, that this is actually very fitting End, to the real story that Luke is telling in the book of Acts. Because Acts in the end is not really about the Apostle Paul. The hero of the book of Acts is the word of God. It's the power of the gospel to overcome all things thrown against it. Nothing can stand against the power of, the, of God's word. That's the real message of the book of Acts. God's word ultimately triumphs throughout Acts over the murderous plots of the Jews, over the idolatry and the magic arts of of paganism, over even the forces of nature itself. Mediterranean winter storms, snakes jumping out at you from fires. The gospel triumphs. Chains, house arrest, cannot prevent the gospel from triumphing. I think the, word, the last word of Acts is the pertinent word, the word that's the linchpin of interpretation for this whole book, unhindered. The Apostle Paul was hindered, but the word was not. It could not be stopped or slowed or squelched. Paul writing to Timothy probably some years after this, says, remember Jesus, Timothy. Let me read it to you. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, a descendant of David, according to my gospel. Remember him, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. As we're going to see in the early part of Philippians, which he writes during this period, we believe, he says to, to the Philippian church, Oh, don't worry about me, because this is actually turning out for the further progress of the gospel. In fact, the whole Praetorian Guard knows I'm here suffering for Jesus, because they're chained to me every day on a rotating basis, and I talk to them. It's just beautiful. This is the message of the book of Acts God's word is unstoppable, it's powerful it overcomes just as God promised it would in Isaiah 55 where he says, So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So Luke's purpose in writing Acts is to show primarily... Through the life and the ministry and the faith of the Apostle Paul, but also through the life and ministry and faith of others before him, that the gospel is irrepressible, unstoppable, unsquelchable. The message of the kingdom cannot be restrained. In fact, attempts to restrain it or suppress it result in its furtherance. And opportunities for God to laugh at his enemies. My favorite example of that came back in chapter 5 of Acts, where the apostles were put in prison because they wouldn't obey the order from the Jews to keep silent about Jesus. They kept it up, and they were healing people, and people were coming to them in droves. And out of jealousy, they put them in prison the next morning expecting to... Put them on trial and settle this matter, teach them a lesson. Well, in the night, an angel comes and opens the gates. Nobody knows this is being done. He takes, he leads them out of the prison, and the angel says to them, Go to the temple and teach the people all the words of this life. So they go, and in the morning, that's where they are. Meanwhile, the council gets together to to put these guys on trial. They ask the prisoners to be brought in. Nobody can find them. Where are they? They're they're bewildered by this. They're arguing about it, trying to figure it out. And somebody runs in saying, those men you put in prison are in the temple teaching the people. God laughing at his enemies. The word of God cannot be stopped. Now, When Paul, when his servants open their mouths in faith and boldly declare the truth, they suffer. And that's no joke. Paul suffered more than just about anybody for the sake of the Lord Jesus. In fact, when Paul was called to believe and appointed as an apostle, the words pronounced over him, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my sake. Suffering is part of the deal. But look at the power and the life that springs from their proclamation, setting free prisoners, healing the sick, overwhelming the forces of darkness. This is where it's at. This is the kingdom of God. And it... it, is furthered and depends on and is built and is and grows by the word of God declared in boldness I hope that we will grow in boldness I hope we have grown in boldness as we have walked through this history with the apostles and seeing what God can do, what God is not hindered by, seeing that suffering is actually to be seen as a badge of honor and rejoicing, not to be, spend our lives in fear of or isolating ourselves from, but to be accepted in faith for the sake of the hope of the kingdom of God and its great advancement in this world. Do you want to be a part of the kingdom of God and its growth and advancement. I do. There's not an alternative that has hope. We were talking in staff meeting about this passage and about reflecting on Acts and what it, we hope it's taught us Pastor Weeks was saying, you know, I think we tend to think that I guess Bloomington just belongs to Alfred Kinsey. I guess my neighbor is just the way he is. I think that's how we tend to think, that there's nothing really that can be done about that. And then Pastor Weeks says, but no, he's somebody you can talk to. Your neighbor is. And you can talk to him about the kingdom of God and about the Lord Jesus Christ. Is God in the business of changing lives? We saw it in the book of Acts. He's still up to it today. And we are living testaments of that in our life. Amen. Now, let's have faith that God would use us to be vessels of his mercy proclaiming the truth of his word in this community. May he change us further into courageous advocates of his truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this study, the book of Acts, and all that you have revealed and taught to us. And I pray that it would resonate in our hearts and teach us more and more to be like you. I pray that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and that you would make us bold in proclaiming your truth and that you would raise up from our midst evangelists, that you would stir and awaken in us sympathy, kindness, compassion for souls who are dying and going to hell all around us on our streets, in our classrooms, at our workplaces. Oh, Father, I pray that you would inspire in us an evangelistic zeal in me that I would do the work of an evangelist and that all of us, Father, would do more for your kingdom and glory and not be afraid of rejection or harm but live for your approval and have our eyes fixed on your kingdom and heaven and not on the temporary things of this world.